Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Because we we sound unprepared only because of how prepared we actually are. Because like we were waiting at the coiled spring for it to flip onto the top of the hour so we could start the show. It's uh, well, we're all very um, cool and uh, calculated. So yes. my name is Nick, and this is Nathaniel Metcalf. And um, you are listening to Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's. Fan. Fan club. Why did you say fan? I said fan and I stopped and I left it up for you to say club. Okay, should we do it again? I hate Zoom. That would never have happened in the real world, in the real room. I always said womb. <laughs> in the womb. Wouldn't have happened in the womb. Wouldn't have happened in the womb. Uh, but, um, but thankfully now um, you can get foobar in the womb. So it's available everywhere. Um, my, I've, um, uh, what's the first rule of fan? The first rule of fan club is please tell your friends. Second rule of fan club is please, for the love of God, for the love of Mike, just, just tell your friends. Who is Mike? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a thing that came out. I think for the love of Mike, if we want to be. Uh, uh, Strict about it. I think it comes from comic books where, due to the distribution in the sort of Bible Belt southern states, they often replace swear words like Jesus and Jeebus and Jeez, Gee Whiz, instead of saying Jesus. And, and um, for the lover, Mike, instead of for the lover, God. Yeah, but that, but that doesn't sound like uh, God, does it, Mike? No, I guess otherwise you'd be saying, for the love of Og, dog. Because um, in, the, in the Michael Jackson song, in the Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney song, The Girl Is Mine, mm-hmm. instead of God darn, they see dog on. <laughs> so they say the dog gone, the dog gone girl is mine, 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 the girl is mine. My, my, you know, yeah. um, oh, is this, is this radio? Sure. It, it has to be. That's what we've done. Uh, this is what we've done. This is what we've achieved. I think we're pioneers of radio. We do the type of radio that no one else has ever thought to do before. We do the sort of radio that no one else has even wanted to do. Exactly. They haven't even realised that it's an option. But uh, it is an option, guys. So uh, feel free to use that hole in the wall that we've we've made, and uh, come on through and do do your best. Um, how have you been this week, Nathaniel? Have you been cycling? Been a, done a bit of cycling. Been but just popping out. No, I'd say no long journeys. But I've been popping out, doing a circuit of the park, coming home again. Get it all done in half an hour. Feel a bit fitter. Get on with the rest of my day. Okay, um, now that. How have you been this week, Nick? I, I think. Uh, oh, I've been. Um, I've been all right, actually. Thank you. Um, I've uh, somebody somebody uh, sent me a script to read, 
And uh, it's 144 pages long. Ouch. And I think um, I have mixed emotions. Uh, firstly, I'm proud of them to have achieved that. I think writing 144 pages of anything is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think it's antisocial and probably a bit cuntish uh, <laughs> to expect someone else to read it. It's a first draft as well. Um, so, uh, so I've been doing that this week. I've been, I've been reading that, um, which, is, which is fine. But it's it's a big ask to yeah. sort of like, and also I'm better at reading off paper. I really don't like reading um, off uh, of a laptop and stuff like that. I hate it. So you know, yeah. Um, how's my week been, Nathaniel? Mm -hmm. Up and down. Oh no. Um, but, um, but it's fine. So uh, uh, so you've been cycling a little bit. I think that that is uh, enough to show that I've shown an interest. Um, what have you been watching this week? I've been watching a lot of stuff because last week I basically failed in my duties for this show. I realised I just haven't really watched anything. Um, I have watched this yeah, but week. You work at a cinema. You, you, it's sort of like a busman's holiday. Do you find? Nah, I do. I do usually really like watching films and I watch a lot of films with my, my own time and I love it. I think weirdly in lockdown, I feel more of a pressure to not because i'm not technically at work or doing more obvious work i think i feel a pressure to not watch films because i think that if i get go down that road i could just do that all day and feel like i'm not achieving enough so i'm trying to do other things to go along with watching films and watching films is more of a treat now than um than it has been but i think it's a very good reason Last week, you've almost given me the excuse to watch films now by going, I need to watch films. I need to talk about something on the radio. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, I'm telling you what has been blatantly uh, obvious to everyone else all this time is it's your fucking job, Nat. Uh, even if it's just one film, one film a week, you know. Um, although I... I uh, Lockdown's been really weird because I really haven't felt the need to watch... I don't know whether it's because... Um, well, I, I would imagine it's because my TV's not been working. Right. But I don't know whether it's because my TV's not been working or whether it's because um, I've just not been in the mood or anything like that. But I, I, I spent the first... <laughs> this is mental, isn't it, that you can say I spent the first three months of lockdown. The first 100 days of lockdown. I spent I spent that watching no films, but recently I've been watching um, I've been watching almost like a film a day, if not like two films a day. And uh, but I watch them quite late at night because um, I can't sleep. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't watch films for a bit, and then and then I've and then I've got more more back into it. But um, I don't know I, why why is that? Why do you think that is? Because, because when I'm busy, I will always fit it in. And I'll go to the cinema and I will uh, watch DVDs and I'll do all of that stuff. But um, when you have been, when, when, now that I have been, you know, um, uh, in lockdown, locked in, <laughs> imprisoned in Camp COVID, um, I, I've got all of these DVDs at my disposal. I just haven't really, I felt like, even if I do nothing, 
I'd rather do nothing than watch a film because I feel like watching a film is almost like indulgent. Yeah, I think it feels like a reward for doing... Like I do, and I have been working, you know, I've been working on things in lockdown and I think that's good, but I guess watching films and seeing it is more of a treat, more of like, a, right, well, I've done that. I could probably do something. I could probably watch a film now or do something. I or look probably... at night, I go like, oh, I've sort of, I'm not going to get any more work done today. Yeah. That kind of thing. I could probably sit down for two hours yeah. and stare at a screen and then it's kind of like... And then once I've done that, I'll do that for another 22 hours. You know, well, there's a, there's a lot of napping. Um, but yeah, no, I've been, I've been busy. I've done stuff, but like, um, but yeah, I don't feel like I do honestly. Yeah. I feel like it is a treat and, um, and I don't feel like I've earned it, but yeah, recently I've been watching lots of films. So that's good. And, and I realized that I bloody love them and I love them. I love them more than telly. Yeah. I think I know I love films because I watch so many bad films. Like, oh my, I watch films going into them thinking, oh, this is going to be pretty bad, but I'm just intrigued to see what it's like. Um, and I think that's that's the difference between any other medium that I, I sort of enjoy watching films, just to get the, the idea of, what is this? What's this actually like? Uh, one of the things I watched this week that's a good example of that, I saw the film Wumbling Free, which is a 1977 Wombles film, live-action Wombles film. Live-action? Oh, you bet live-action. What do you mean, live-action? It's got the real Wombles in it. What do you mean, Uncle Bulgaria's in a fucking outfit? You bet. What? Yes, please. It's a man in a fucking suit? You bet. No, stop motion? Nope. What? Very much so. You fucking with me? What's it called? It's called called Wombling Free. It's called fucking Wombling Free. You fuck! What, the, what did those fucking crazy fuckers do? They've only gone and fucking done a live action fucking Wombles fucking movie! Fucking hell! That's like Jurassic Park gone mad just because you can doesn't mean you should! Fucking yes, go on. <laughs> fucking who don't. What? Fucking when it's it was. Written, it's written and directed by actor director Lionel Jeffries. It's not stop motion. It's not stop motion. Because that would have taken too long. It's a fucking, it's a quickie, right? They've gone like, let's knock this out in a fucking weekend. Well, I think it's weirdly seen as like, like almost like a bit of a reward. Like, well, you know, the, the cartoon's very popular. So let's do a live action version. But of course, by achieving a live action version of a Wombles film, they could only really do that by having the one, like men dressed as Wombles. It's uh, written and directed by Lionel Jeffries. He did The Railway <laughs> Children and The Amazing Mr. Bundan. And I was sort of struck by how much I really love his films and how I think they're properly, like, like almost like auteur films and totally brilliant. And it's then I thought, no, I need to watch the rest of his films. And his final film is Wumbling Free, which he admits to not particularly liking making, but it's not <laughs> a particularly good film. It's very much his family plot. <laughs> I get it. I get it, Nick. I liked it. Thanks. Um, that's mental. Because I, I, right, you're saying animated, but I would argue that the Wombles TV show was live action. Just, yeah. very, just very slow and then put together again. Yeah. I think the world... that's, all real, that's all real stuff. 
you know, it, it, yeah. was, it, it was stop motion, right? Yeah, yeah. And would have taken more skill and work gone into it than dressing people up in suits. Like, they probably could have done that to begin with if they'd wanted to. There's no, there's no artistry about it. It's like, well, no, so what year was this? 77. So when, they, when was the song Remember You're a Womble released? So no, I reckon, I reckon 73, 74. So they would have draw, dusted off the old top of the pop suits and then gone, right. Because they all, all the Wombles went on top of the pops with like saxophones and guitars and stuff. And yeah. Mine belonged to it. And then they'd have gone, we need a movie. We need it. Well, the tax man is coming on Wednesday. So ideally, we need to film it and edit it by Tuesday uh, p.m. And then they'd have dusted off the Wampel's outfits and then fucking filmed round the clock for a day and knocked out. That's so weird. Because it's magical as well, right? Yeah, yeah. The weird thing is that it points out that, you, that I'd never really realised is that the, the impression is that you, what, your regular Womble is about four or five foot tall and is and interacts with humans. And the humans in it are like played by David Tomlinson from Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, playing like, you know, like a, a businessman in a, in a bowler hat. and Mr Banks. Mr Banks himself. Right. Uh, so it has that feeling like it's trying to be almost like a sort of Disney movie, and it's and it's um, his wife is Frances de la Tour, uh, <laughs> and and if you sort of think, oh, this is a bit, this is a bit tough going, their neighbour is um, is someone playing a Japanese man who isn't Japanese, who's obviously English, and you go, oh dear. Oh dear, the one blue yeah, movie. It's a bit. It, it's a bit of a. But it's like it's that that you can tell. Like at the start when they went to make it, and I feel like this is Lionel Jeffries all over. The idea is to try and make what feels like it's 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 attempting to make a genuine sort of children's film classic. It has lots of elements of it that you go. If this had been done right. It feels like they really could have pulled this out of the bag and made a real charming film. But they just... But what it is, is blokes in suits. Uh, and one of the worst things about it is, not only is Bernard Cribbins, the voice of the Wombles, from the Wombles... He's not in it at all. And the voices are done by different people who are good. Because that's what I asked. I said, is Bernard Cribbins in it? But he's... But what? Was he... He did the original TV series, The Wombles. Hmm. He did all the voices. And he was in The Railway Children. Yeah, exactly. And the guy that did all that didn't use him. No. But he uses himself. Lionel Jeffries is great Uncle Bulgaria, the voice of. Um, Bungo is voiced by David Jason. <laughs> One of the other ones is John Pertley. Uh, and I can't remember who the others are, but they're all kind of quite familiar voices. Um, so you haven't watched a film in four months yeah. And yeah. then you come back all guns blazing with the Wombles movie. Yeah. What's it called? Remember you're a Womble? It's called Wombling Free, Nick. Wombling Free, right. Yeah. Okay. 77, Lionel Jeffries. Uh, couldn't recommend it, but it is interesting. I'm glad I've seen it. The year is 1977. I think it was probably the biggest film that year, right? Uh, yeah, I think it probably... 
Yeah, fucking. <laughs> that's incredible. That's incredible. That's what we were doing in the British. Oh. Weirdly, one of the Wombles is played by Kenny Baker. And I sort of think, Bruce must yeah, have been here. just before or just after Star yeah. Wars. It would have been just after. <laughs> do you, don't you think? Because Star Wars must have been 76 and Wombles. Yeah. They must have filmed Star Wars in 76. It was obviously, guys, <laughs> released in 77, but uh, there was so much special effects work that it would have uh, taken a few old months. Um, how much special effects work is there in uh, Womble and Free? Well, very cleverly, Nick, we've avoided having to use any by just going <laughs> this. Like, the selling point is the fact that there are these little stop... Because it's like... They're like these beautiful little stop-motion kind of... Um, uh, animated um, characters, and that's like the selling point, right? Is yeah. that is that as a child you watch that and you're instantly like sucked into it? And it's got you, a nice, it's got a nice message because it sort of uses all the stuff about you know them tidying up, and it uses it as part of being the Keep Britain Tidy campaign. So it's all about ecology and being good to the environment and things. It's that's hard they, there, but it's just. Um, that's how they yeah. would have got their budget, don't you think? They, they would have sort of I reckon they have. I reckon they've got some money off the government to make it. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. That's so crazy. Um but they so it's almost like really not anything to do with the T V series at all. So they've kind of like Well it uses all like the so it is kind of weirdly back. So I, I don't know much about the Wombles history, but I get the impression that the that the T V series really solidifies those characters. And it uses all the designs from the TV series. So they're not like random Wombles. They're definitely the same characters with exactly the same design as they do on the BBC series. Yeah, and it's, it's based on the, the book and the BBC TV series. Yeah, but it would have been the same costumes off of Top of the Pops, right? Yeah, probably with a little bit of uh, amending to them. Because if it's that, because if, it if, if it was a proper film with a proper budget, they'd have done stop motion. I never got the impression, though, that the Wombles were four foot tall. No, I always assume they're like, you know, I sort of think of them as sort of rodents. So I kind of think of them as like little things, yeah. like uh, about a foot tall. Even a foot is pushing it, I would say. Right. I would think, I, do you know what? I probably was never at, yeah, I was probably never particularly... Um, uh, enchanted by them in the first place, and I only ever saw them for what they were, which is two-inch tall little action figures that are being manipulated by animators. Yeah, well, it turns out they're massive. They're, they're the size of your dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mum! Um, that's fucking weird. That's weird. Okay. Saw that. Um, that's weird that Bernard Cribbins wasn't included. I think so. I, I wonder if, like, um, um, I, I'd like I'd like to chat to Bernard Cribbins about it just to see what, like, what did you reckon about that when that film came out? Because we went to see Bernard Cribbins at Christmas, didn't we, when we were allowed out? Yeah, we did. We at, did. Um, it's what kind of good. Ball? You could have queued up. You could have queued up out the back and accosted him and just said, "How do you feel?" <laughs> About the Womble snub. <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you this. And I could be just behind you and I could ask him, uh, what was it like filming Carry On Jack? And but you know what? <laughs> I, bet, I bet if you said that, he'd go, oh yeah, 
I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> what else have you watched other than the Wombles? Um, I watched The World's End. Uh, Edgar Wright? The Edgar Wright film. That's I, my favourite out of the three. Oh, good. I always think people don't like it. I think it's great. My oh, favourite is Hot Fuzz, but I think that's neck and neck with Shaun of the Dead. Um, your favourite is Hot Fuzz? Mm. Um, I didn't really get into Hot Fuzz. I saw that at the... Uh, I saw that... At, it might have been the fact that I saw it on Valentine's Day at lunchtime with my dad. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I love, obviously, I love space. That was kind of, like, really iconic. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, space was it, just an incredible TV series. I, I loved it. And then um, I was really excited about Shaun of the Dead. And I never really, it never really completely did it for me. And then Hot Fuzz, I, not so much. And then um, The World's End, I, I bloody loved. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was great. But yeah, I think that that's sort of an unpopular opinion, really. Yeah, I find, and I find that the films they make apart from each other, I don't enjoy nearly as much. I just think, I always feel like there's an element missing. Like, without each other, they don't seem to be able to make their films charming enough for me. I think when you see them in other stuff, even stuff they've written or things that they've got a real authorship over, I never enjoy it as much as the stuff they do together. I haven't watched everything. I've got. To, I haven't watched everything, but no, um, I don't know if I have now. Um, but I, I, Hot Fuzz is one of those films that's always on IT, or it felt like it was always on ITV two. Yeah, and so you'd kind of like it would be like one o'clock in the morning, and you'd switch on ITV two and Hot Fuzz, and I would. It's one of those films where wherever it is, I will, um, I will sit down and I'll end up watching the, the whole thing. You know? Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about it. I think it's a real... Cla- I think it's going to... Um, I think it's going to age better than all of... I think it feels really... Like, it's becoming a bit of a classic, I think. I've watched Hot Fuzz tons of times, and I, can, I, I go back to it a lot, and it's a very warm, reassuring film for me, and it feels like it ticks so many of my boxes of things I like. Um, as does as does World's End, actually, and I, I, I think that's... the probably about the fourth time I've seen it. And I really do like it. I think it's really charming. I'm really surprised that it doesn't have, doesn't seem to be as well remembered by other people um, as the other two. I think it's I auditioned for it. Oh yeah. It was, um, oh, I've just, I just remembered. I can't remember what year it would have been. Maybe it was 2012, just after. Yeah, in 2013. Yeah, so it was just after Edinburgh, 2012. So I'd just done This Means War, and then I'd got into, got back to England, and we got like, um, and I got called in to audition for a, uh, it was a barman, and I remember that because um, obviously, uh, Shaun of the Dead is like a horror zombie comedy, and then Hot Fuzz was like an action comedy, and then I remember being able to work out from the two pages of script that I got that this was going to be a science fiction film because there was no information on it. Do you know what I mean? And you were a barman. And I, I just remember, because I was a barman and they were talking about kind of like how all of the pubs are being uh, 
homogenized and turned into Weatherspoons and stuff like that. I don't really think that comes across in the film. I remember, I remember seeing it in these little um, sides that we got, which is what you call scripts in the industry. Um, you got these sides, you got, and uh, I remember looking at them and being able to work out what the plot of the film was and just going, that is genius. And I don't think it really, it probably is there. I don't know, yeah, I think, I, I, I get that completely. And I, but I mean, again, I think it's, I think with all those films, they do, they do, you are rewarded for repeat viewing, but you do pick up and stuff all the time. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah, but I, I don't, I, be, I mean, I don't think it was subtle in a good way. It's kind of like they've gone, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but with pubs. Mm. All of the pubs are being turned into these kind of like chain pubs. And you go, that's genius. Because everyone's noticed that, you know. And, um, and if we were being invaded by aliens, it wouldn't just be the people that all end up kind of uh, being taken over. It'd be everything that we do. Mm. I mean, I just thought it was, I thought that, yeah. I thought, I thought as, a, as a concept for... A, uh, film, I thought it was genius, and then, um, and it's, but I just, I just really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, the, I can't believe I didn't get the job because I was a barman at the time, <laughs> and it was literally just asking Simon Pegg whether he wanted a pint or not. I mean, I, he wasn't there, so maybe that was part of the problem. Yeah, the thing though, I think a lot of the uh, <laughs> the barmen that are in the film that I can think of, which is, might be why you didn't get it is that I think they went with that all the barmen are kind of like older people. They're all like old sort of um, publicans more than they're kind of younger people, which I think is perhaps what they decided to go with, which is probably unlike a lot of pubs at that time in real life. But I think right. they probably just went a different way with it, where everyone everyone who's running the pubs all seem to be middle-aged in it. Sure. That's, do you know what, Matt? You could have gone anywhere with that. And um, it was very kind of you. <laughs> Thanks for shielding me from the truth. <laughs> uh, even even when I'm basically just reenacting my day job, <laughs> uh, I am unconvincing. Um, good. All right. Anything else? Well, one that I watched um, weirdly. Um, uh, Sort of appropriately, but I did it before. I watched Once Upon a Time in the West the day before Ennio Morricone died. And so I was like, oh, we just watched Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, I mean, um, what was the last big score that he did? Was it uh, Hateful Eight, maybe? Yeah, I think it probably would have been. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, like, um, obsessive. Mm. I love all of his... I probably... Love him more than um, John Williams, you know, huh. in terms of um, in terms of like film music, and um, I like. Funny, I watched The Good, The Bad, and the Ugly the other week, and um, and I remember because the thing about those films, you know, I'm obviously obsessed with uh, Jello movies and um, uh, Italian movies around that time. And the thing about that was that they didn't ever, they didn't have a sound department a lot of the time. So you'll see pictures of Sergio Leone filming, um, uh, filming the Dollars trilogy, 
uh, more with like the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more. Like so, so those films, rather than stuff like Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, Once Upon a Time, well, obviously not with Once Upon a Time in the uh, in America, but like they had um, they had so little money to make those films, and also it was sort of pointless because they knew they were going to dub all the films anyway. Mm. So, 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 just to recap, spaghetti westerns were an Italian crew. Uh, that filmed in Spain, um, uh, down in southern Spain, quite near Alicante, in a place that is now called Little Hollywood. And um, they had Italian crews, which is why they're called Spaghetti Westerns, but they would hire international casts, which is the same as what they did with Giallos, which were Italian thrillers, but they were basically called Spaghetti Thrillers as well. So they'd film in Europe somewhere, but there'd be Italian crew. And then they'd have an international cast of, like, Germans and Spanish guys and Italians. And and then they'd normally cast, like, one either British or American cast member so that they could sell it to uh, America and England. Which is why when they made uh, Pistful of Dollars, they, um, uh, they got uh, Clint Eastwood. Because Clint Eastwood was off of Rawhide, which was a TV show a black and white 60s TV show about um, uh, cowboys. And so uh, so they were like, well, he's kind of like, he's not huge, but he's sort of well-known enough for, like, American TV audiences. So he got Clint Eastwood in. And then everyone just spoke their own languages when they were on set. And um, uh, and so, so Sergio Leone didn't even bother having, like, a sound department. No. And then... Um, speak English. Doesn't speak English. Doesn't speak English. No. So, um, yeah, completely believe that. Mm. Um, but so, um, so, so when, when you, I watched The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which is a three-hour epic, I mean, we're, I mean, we're getting to half past, so we should play a song soon, but let's talk about him afterwards. But when you get to, like, um, when you, it's, a three, it's three hours, and I just remember thinking that... The, it's, it's, it's very difficult with films because because um, the director gets so much credit for, for what's up there. But in actual fact, if you take off the score, if you take off the music, this isn't just because he's just died and it's, it's something to say. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If you take off the music to most films, it's 50% of what you're watching. It adds, it adds everything to it. And especially... When you look at those films, there wasn't any sound that was recorded. He was responsible for the sound. When you look at um, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which I think is his best film, I just think, like, um, Ennio Morricone was in charge of, like, the sound design at the beginning of that film. Like, there's a water dripping onto someone's hat and a fly buzzing around, and it's not even music but there's like a sound design that's been built up for the first, I can't remember how long that sequence is, but it's like, it's about 10 minutes long, 10, 15 minutes long of just people getting off trains and, uh, and there's tension slowly rising and all the tension is built up through a, a collection of shots, but like the sound just sort of like escalates and, um, and it, it's, yeah, it's incredible. And then there's also a sequence where um, the, the, the woman in it, she gets off a train and she's walking down and there are like um, train porters that are walking past her with suitcases and luggage and stuff. And Sergio, uh, Ennio Morricone 
rec recorded the score before the film got made so that they could play the score on set and they could orchestrate, they could choreograph all of their movements so that it was in time to the music. And... Um, and not using sound when he filmed, you know, you could do, you could do that. You play the, you play the, you play the music, and everyone would kind of like know their parts, and then everything was so neatly choreographed. And it was even Sergio Leone, when he was making those films, was acknowledging the fact that music is uh, it's hyper important. It's not like this thing that you whack on at the end. It's kind of like he worked in tandem with Ennio Morricone to create these films. Like they created films together. It wasn't sort of like, I've made this movie, can you do a soundtrack to it? It was like they created these things together and they were just as important as, as, as each other. If you say The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, I would say people that haven't even seen the film can sing the, sing, sing the theme tune to it. And, you know, uh, and that theme tune uh, gets across the entire uh, tone of the film. Yeah. You know? And I think that's like, it's such a a great score, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, that probably the best bit of music in it isn't even the main theme. It's like, by the time, by the time the X-Tier goal kicks in, it is this sort of, it's like, wow! It's like, it's, it's not even like the hit at the start. No. It sort of saves the big, big sound, big record to the end of the movie. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, oh, X-Tier of Gold, um, when I when I watched it, it was so. Um, it's such a powerful piece of music, and when he's running through the, I mean, it's like, but it's literally, it's a perfect uh, marriage between visuals and music, and Eli Wallach is incredible in that film. Like he is, he runs away with the film. He's by far the the best. I mean, they're all good, yeah. you know. Um, but Lee Van Cleef had his turn in uh, A Few Dollars More, and uh, and I don't know which performance I like the most. I really love him in A Few Dollars More. And that has amazing music in it as well. But by the time it gets to XC of Gold at the end of... I mean, I was crying, because it's it's not it's not an emotional sequence in terms of, like... Um, it's not sad, or it's, and it's not... Yeah, but the music is so sort of overwhelming that, um, yeah, I just had tears running down my face because I just thought it was just, it was, it was incredible. And it's the visuals and it's the performance and it's the direction and it's the music. And you take the music, take an element out of it, you don't get the same thing. But you take the music out of it and you haven't, you haven't got a film. Hmm. I think one of the great things about those movies as well, that if you think of any film, really, and you sort of visualise it in your mind's eye... <laughs> I think what you're imagining is a sort of approximation of what that scene actually looked like. And you're probably imagining this sort of master shot of it. But I think with uh, Leone films, especially those spaghetti westerns, you get, when you think about them, you are remembering them exactly as they were on screen because the shots are so composed and so well thought and the editing so good that you remember them in exactly the way. You remember them shot for shot about what happens, it's that shot, then it's that shot, then it's that yeah. shot. And, and in actual fact, you have Ecstasy of Gold in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, but then directly afterwards you have the bit when they have the Mexican standoff and they're all stood there and it builds and builds and builds and he's literally using like the same nine shots. Like you see their eyes and you see their gun holsters and, you see, and, and, it, and they just like repeating it over and over and over and over again. The same shots over and over again. 
Uh, and the music just builds it up to the point where, you know, they're about to shoot and you, it's sort of unbearable. You know, the tension is just sort of like unbearable. And um, yeah, it's such a, such a, oh, it's, it's incredible. Um, uh, let's play a song and then we'll go back to talking about it. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Daley Thompson wasn't famous in 77, was he? We're back! Uh, did, did, did you catch me saying Daley Thompson wasn't famous in 77, was he? Because <laughs> uh, that's the sort of thing we talk about during the music breaks. <laughs> um, There's a discussion uh, about whether, when I was talking about Wombly and Free, whether uh, Natalie, our producer, thought that instead of saying David Tomlinson, I'd, she misheard it as Daley Thompson, which I can understand how that could happen. But just for anyone wondering, Daley Thompson was not in Wumbling Free. For anyone wumbling about it, <laughs> Daley Thompson wasn't in Wumbling Free. Um, the Wumble song uh, came out in 1974. Right, okay. Well, you weren't far off. And um, the last score Ennio Morricone did was actually for an Italian film called The Correspondence which starred Jeremy Irons. It's an Italian film, but in the English language. See, see, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. They would make an Italian film, but they'd put someone like your David Hemmings in it. Mm-hmm. Um, or your Jeremy Irons. Um, so, um, so we were just talking. Um, so the, uh, there's the Dollars trilogy, where you have... Um, uh, Fistful of Dollars, which is basically, it was a remake. It was an, I mean, they got sued, didn't they? It was um, an unofficial remake of uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, mm. which was a samurai film, which the samurai films were all really heavily influenced by the Westerns. And um, so it was kind of like this uh, cyclical thing where it was basically cannibalizing itself, where um, uh, Akira Kurosawa really loved westerns, and so he made uh, a western about a samurai. And then Sergio Leone, who's a Spanish guy, no, an Italian guy, decides to make an American western in Spain with an Italian crew that was completely nicked off of a Japanese movie. And um, and it's kind of like those those spaghetti westerns are really responsible on, uh, for. Um, the rebirth of like the western because you had classic american westerns and then they were sort of like maybe dying out there was science fiction and stuff and um and then uh mid 60s i think it was 65 66 and 67 but it might be 64 65 and 66 but they he, he released one a year and um uh and, and yeah it was kind of like a lot of the way that um, Americans have sort of like adopted how they feel about the Wild West has been from the spaghetti westerns mm. and there were hardly any Americans involved in the production of that and yeah. it was all sort of mythology that was sort of stolen from samurai movies. Yeah. I mean, and they, so, they would have felt old-fashioned in the 60s, the West, and because westerns weren't really, they weren't trying to be real, were they? They were almost like sort of these sort of fictionalised West, whereas the spaghetti westerns, I think, were, they felt like much more like how the West would have been than they, what we've seen previously. But they, they were gritty. But they're also, I mean, they were well-made films, but also they were kind of um, cheap films. Mm. And so they were, so I think especially Fistful of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars, anyway, it's, it's not my favourite because I would watch that film and 
I feel like because it's a remake, they got sued. <laughs> I mean, they just didn't have permission. <laughs> I guess they weren't expecting it to be a hit. Nah. You know? I think it's all like, I think by the end, I think Akira Kurosawa and Leone became friends. And I think partly because Kurosawa was like, thanks for all the money. And he was like, well, my pleasure. I doubt, I doubt you would have taken it. It's such a compliment. In, in that respect, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I love that film so much, I'm just going to make it. <laughs> um, but then, um, the, but that's, that's been remade loads. That's literally, so it's like a really, it's a really famous plot where it's just kind of like, you have a, a loner in town that's playing one gang off against another. Mm. And they, they've remade that as, uh, uh, Bruce Willis remade that as Last Man Standing in, was that a Walter Hill film in the 90s? Yeah. And, um, the James Corden National Theatre play One Man, Two Governors is also based on it. I mean, it's basically that. It's basically... It's basically a servant to two masters, as they say in Commedia dell'arte, um, but, which is Italian. So it's kind of like... It's all cyclical. But, um, so I think that that film's fine. I can sort of take or leave that film. Um, and, uh, but um, uh, a few dollars more, I think... Is it's not it's not as good as the Kids of Bad New York, but it is better. It's a it's it's, a, it's I just love it. Sorry, I mean I just love it. I think that that film is incredible, and that's got an amazing score to it. Um, and it's like what you were saying. It's kind of like so they have the bad guy in a fistful of dollars, and there's elements that work, and they're not really direct sequels either. It's kind of like. So he's got the same costume, but that's more budgetary than the fact that it's the same character. Um, it's nice. So it's he's kind of got different names. I mean, he doesn't really... They call him the man with no name, only that he's kind of called something in all of them. They he's call him Blondie. Blondie. Uh, uh, what else do they call him? <laughs> <laughs> um, got, like, they call him things in all of them. And it's sort of... You can kind of see it as the same character, but they're not really... Like, it's not to you, really, if you want to... In the good, the bad, and the ugly, you, I think by that point they've sort of acknowledged the fact that it's a trilogy, mm. and so in the good, the bad, and the ugly is a prequel to the other two, and throughout that film, he is slowly putting together his costume, mm. and so like right at the you know, like right near the end, uh, there's um, uh, a soldier that's dying, and um, he's using his poncho as uh, a pillow. And then he picks it up, and then the next shot he's wearing the poncho. And uh, at one point he's got like um, he's got one hat, and then he loses his hat, and then he finds another hat during the film. And then you go, and by the end of the film he's got the classic look from uh, Fistful of Dollars. But it sort of it builds up throughout the film. It's kind of really cool like that. Um, but they're not really direct, directly related. But it's, but what we were saying was, so in Fistful of Dollars you have um, you have Clint Eastwood, and then you have the bad guy. And then in A Few Dollars More, you have Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, who, are, uh, who team up together to kill an, a different bad guy that's played by the same actor from the previous film. And then in the next film, you have Lee Van Cleef playing the bad guy, uh, who's a different character from the good guy that he was playing in the previous film. So it's kind of like there was like a rolling cast where they kind of reused them and repurposed them here and there. Um, but you saw... Once Upon a Time in the West. Which, uh, is, which is his masterpiece. That's, mm. that's, that's, yeah. And it feels like it's trying to be like it. Um, there's elements of it where it's slightly more 
it has higher pretensions, I think, than the others. And I think it does hit them, but it's still like a proper, real rollicking, good, like, fun Western. And in that way, it's got lots of things that I think they all have to a point. There's lots of elements in it, especially the Jason Robards character that you can see repeated in, you know, Robert Rodriguez movies and things. It's very, like that thing, the bits where he's got, it's just a lot of fun. All his stuff is this, uh, this sort of bandit. And, there's the, and they're really sort of clever, fun bits of sort of gunplay and things. The bit where he's got the boot kicking on the window and the guy thinks he can see the guy um, and he's going to shoot him. So he's got his foot, uh, only he's just hanging upside down and he's got his gun inside the boot. And it's all that kind of it's really nice sort of fun action mixed with it's very sort of grand and epic in a way that the others are, but they're more, oh, I don't know, it's like, it feels like it's a real, it's, a, it's an absolute sort of love letter to all those kind of old westerns, and they do feel very grand and epic in a way that Good, the Bad and the Ugly and the those three earlier films don't, I think. But he's sort of earning, he's, he's earning his right to make it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So he's made these three incredible films, and then by the time he's made Once Upon a Time in the West, he's got Henry Fonda in it, who mm. is famous for being in cowboy films. Mm. You know? And um, like he's a legitimate, huge American icon, and he's made these three... You know, Lee Van Cleef was an extra in, in, in movies. You know, he was sort of like... He's got an interesting face, but he was like a background villain. Yeah. Until he made those films, and then he had to leave America to break it into America, you know? Um, whereas uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is the first film that he made where he got to play with those with those people. I guess Charles Bronson was famous around that time as well. I don't know, I think it must be like... When you think of Bronson, though, I think of Bronson as being much more famous in the 70s, and Once Upon a Time in the West is 68, and I think yeah, of Bronson but he, much more famous in... When was The Great Escape? Uh, I think that's 60... I think that's 68 as well. Because that's... I mean, I, I I think of him as, like, that was kind of, like, his um, yeah. peak. And then the Death Wish stuff was all kind of like, all right, yeah, this is... I'm working for a living, and, you know... Mm. Um, but... Because um, he's great in Great Escape as well. Um, but anyway, we, so we went to see Ennio Morricone and he's got so many great scores. And if you listen to this and you don't really know, if you don't really know much about him, I mean, I, I put Ennio Morricone on in the background just when I'm working and, and writing and stuff. It's sort of, um, uh, it's the most cinematic, it's the most cinematic music because basically it's doing 50% of the work. You can just visualise everything. Um, not the, um, I would say my favourite um, Ennio Morricone stuff would be uh, the harmonica stuff, which is absolutely chilling, uh, from um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, the uh, uh, music box stuff from um, uh, A Few Dollars More. Uh, the entire score for The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And then later on, he did something, He did The Untouchables, which I think is one of the... Uh, which was our favourite, Brian De Palma. And... Um, yeah, and I, I think that the music for The Untouchables is, is stuck with me forever. Again, it's sort of haunting, that music. And 
uh, immediate and very urgent. And then I think probably uh, one of like the nicest things uh, was um, when he did the score for The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. And obviously, like, John Carpenter scored all of his own movies. And when he was doing The Thing for Universal, they basically told John Carpenter that he wasn't allowed to score his own movie. And so John Carpenter had to get a composer in, and he went with Ennio Morricone. And you can see John Carpenter's... You can see sort of Ennio Morricone and Sergio Leone being influenced in all of John Carpenter's stuff. Um, Like, Escape from New York is basically... Um, Kurt Russell doing a Clint Eastwood impression for the entire film. And, and it's got Lee Van Cleef in it, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so he had to get Ennio Morricone into... He didn't have to get Ennio Morricone. He could have got anyone. But he got Ennio Morricone in to do his score. And so Ennio Morricone was just like, well, why aren't you doing it? You normally write your own music. And he said, oh, they won't let me. So Ennio Morricone did an approximation of what he thought a John Carpenter score would be for the thing, which I think is, uh, I think it's like, but there is, there are differences. He uses more music and it's, he uses more instruments and it's kind of a little bit more layered, but, um, uh, but you listen to it and most people think that John Carpenter wrote the score for the thing. And that's, I think that that's just a huge compliment um, because Ennio Morricone valued someone else to the point that yeah. he was baffled by the fact that he wasn't allowed to do his own music. So he just said... Morricone also, I think the thing that's worth remembering about his stuff is that he did like hundreds and hundreds of soundtracks and it's not the ones... When you go and see him, you get to hear all the hits and all the big ones you know, but it's really the tip of the iceberg and it's not like the ones you know are the only good ones. They're all amazing. It's- it's mental, like on Arrow films, you know, uh, you go into FOP and, well, in the old days <laughs> and they'd have like, we do, we do the same thing. You go into FOP and then you end up getting snagged by the three DVDs for 25, or three Blu-rays for 25, and you're just like, no, 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 not this time. And so basically there's, there's hundreds of these Jello movies. It was the same intru- it was the exact same industry that was making the thrillers as it was that were making the westerns. They were these cheapy kind of um, uh, almost like disposable entertainment where uh, there'd be there'd be hyper violent hyper sexualized and it was so that audiences could talk all the way through the films and then every time there was a murder or something they'd all shut up and watch it and then they'd go back to chatting amongst themselves. And um, and there's there's hundreds of them, like hundreds of them that were made, and um, it's always sort of so like Zario Argento kind of and Mario Bava, and Lucio Fulci. They're kind of like the big three guys, but um, I'm always so sort of like surprised by uh, how often Ennio Morricone just pops up and you go, oh, he did the score for this, and he did the score for that. There's like absolutely hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. Uh, Italian movies, and you can um, you can tell he did he did the bird with the crystal plumage. Um, what were the other two out of the Dario Argento? He did three animal films. Yeah, he did uh, Four Flies and Grey Velvet. Yes, and Cat and Nine Tails. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so, um, Ennio Morricone did the scores for those three, uh, but he did he did hundreds, and you can tell you can tell when it's him. You go, uh, yeah. He, these scores are like a step above everything else, and um, and yeah, it's like you say, it, it, uh, they're classics. 
he was he was a, he was a genius and, um, and i think he's like and he did you know films from essentially b movies but he, he sort of started in that B-movie, small Italian westerns and small Italian crime movies and things. And by the end, was almost like the most prestigious composer you could get. So he really ran the whole spectrum of, um, of the industry, I think. Mm. And also probably, arguably, the most famous composer in the world, right? Just for film music. He kinda, you probably know who... Like as a kid, any Morricone would be a name you'd know. But we were, we were special kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, we've got to do some fun mail. Uh, you ready to play the music? Play the music. Okay. Hi, boys. Love to chat with Harry Hill. It reminded me that he was once the host of Stars in Their Eyes. If you dudes ended up walking through the spooky doors, who would you reemerge as? I think Nick would be an excellent Tom Jones. There you go, Tim McGowan. Thanks, Tim. Who would you be, Nathaniel? Oh, who would I be? Who could I pull off, do you think, looks-wise? I reckon you could pull off anyone you wanted, Matt. <laughs> Hi, boys. You've been talking about Adam Sattler. Um, Tom Jones would be fine. I think I'd be Cat Stevens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I reckon I could sing Moonshed. Because it's not about who your favourite is. It's about who you could do an approximation of. Yeah. And I reckon I could get a bit of... I could, hmm, yeah. But then... All he got some string and he got some wood. He did some coughing and he was good. And people came running so they could hear the young New Mexican puppeteer. You know, Stars in Their Eyes used to have that thing where they'd sing like the first couple of lines and when the audience realised what song it was, they'd applaud. If yeah. you did that on Stars in Their Eyes, I reckon you'd get to right to the end and everyone would still be like, no, I've not heard this. I've got, got no fucking idea what that is. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, thanks, Tim. Hi, boys. You've been talking about Adam Sandler a lot lately. I was wondering if you'd like to know what Martin Scorsese wanted him to play Joey Bishop in his unproduced Red Pack biopic. Thanks, Tim. I saw a thing about that. And actually, um, that's the thing. Um, Adam Sandler is his own boss, uh, for better or worse, not to coin a phrase. Um, but um, when other people use him, he's always he's always good um even in something like the cobbler which is one of the worst films ever made he's not he, he's not the problem um maybe maybe he is the problem because he said yes to the project and got it made but um yeah was that dino that scorsese was gonna make with was it with was it with hanks it was gonna it was a weird casting wasn't they, it they wanted tom hanks to be dean martin um I can't remember who they wanted to be Frank Sinatra. No, it's quite but odd. I, I, I think Ray Liotta ended up playing Frank Sinatra in a TV movie. But um, you would say, okay, that's <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, um, I mean, thanks for the. Hello, boys! Hello, you boys! I hope you had a lovely week. I recently got some Nigerian food. It's absolutely delicious. What are your favourite cuisines and why? Korean. Delicious. I like all kinds. I mean, I'm always surprised by things. Nigerian sounds quite nice. So I went to an Ethiopian vegan restaurant not too long ago, and I've had Ethiopian food a couple of times, and I, I think it's delicious. Absolutely delicious. Hmm. 
not a fan. Hi, Nick and Nat! How are you doing, you rock stars? I recently watched Dario Argento's The Mother of Tears, which is the sequel... Oh, why did you do that, you stupid cunt? Which is the sequel of Inferno and Suspiria. It's barely. I found it so fucking whack. It's probably the shittest film Dario Argento has ever made. It's in Dracula 3D. Have you watched it? What are your thoughts on it? Do you like Dario Argento? Have you not even fucking listened to the fucking show before? We've mentioned him every fucking week. I think he looks a bit scary anyway. Cheers and faster. Um, fucking hell. Mother of tears. Fuck me. That's a... F- Have you seen it, Matt? No. I, I, I sort of half want to see it. I want to see it out of interest, but then I also don't want to see it. It's fucking shit. Suspiria is amazing. Inferno has amazing moments that I think some of them are even better than what you get in Suspiria. But as a film, it doesn't hold together that well. And Mother of tears. Mother of mercy. It's fucking... It's a, it's appalling. It doesn't, it doesn't deserve to be included in the same. Com- anyway, it's, it's awful. But I'm sorry that you went through that. But yeah, I love Dario Argento. Um, probably up till about Phenomena. Phenomena. Is it Phenomena or Phenomenon? Phenomena. 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 Okay. Dear Nick and Nathaniel. I am a Muppet. I've only very recently discovered your magnificent <laughs> show and now feel like an utter villain for missing out on the last two years of Fan Club. I have, however, been trying to make amends and I've listened to lots of episodes over the past week or so while out jogging. I don't go out jogging a lot. I just run very slowly, probably best to... You do that in brackets, so while out jogging... Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I have, however, been trying to make amends and have listened to lots of episodes over the past week or so while out jogging. I don't go out jogging a lot. I just run very slowly, probably best described as a sweaty beetroot travelling a pace ever so slightly faster than walking. This has made these erstwhile tortuous occurrences much more bearable. The Kurt Russell chat made me think about Bone Tomahawk, which I rewatched the other night, and that made me very happy. So thank you for that. I was also particularly moved by Nick's story about the local video shop betrayal and subsequent lifelong kills. You are heroes, Lucy. Well, Lucy, that was a very long message. Nice message, though. Tell your friends. Tell you, it was a lovely, it was a lovely message, and I'm sure you don't look like a sweaty beetroot. Um, okay, uh, have we got, oh, okay, we've got two more. We'll just do them really, really quickly. Um, hello, Nathan Nick. Odd that you were chatting about Adam Sandler last week, as I had watched Billy Madison and Big Daddy myself recently. They are still enjoyable when you get past Sandler's monkey boy voice routines. I used to say that Click was his last decent movie, <laughs> but I've not seen it since the cinema. I came across the music documentary I Am Thought on Amazon Prime, and it's brilliant. How had I never come across this guy before? It's 80s cosplay metal at its finest, and also rather touched by his never-say-die attitude, much like the guys from Anvil. If you had to make a documentary, what would you choose as the subject matter never give up on your dreams and keep talking about fan club thanks frank um if i had to make a documentary i would make it i made a documentary it's about ivf treatment (laughs) it's not the sort of thing that you want to binge though is it hi nick what should you do anthony newley i think anthony newley subject (laughs) right last one 
Heineken. I watched the wedding theory again a few weeks ago and I still think it's as good as it ever was. I agree that Adam Sandler puts in a great performance and the chemistry with Drew Barrymore is excellent. Proved again. Proved again in 51st Dates. I'm such a cunt. I agree that Adam Sandler puts in a great performance and the chemistry with Drew Barrymore is excellent. I mean, come on, Nat. Hang on. It's just saying the same thing again. I'm setting you up. Oh, sorry. I'm setting you up! Proved again in oh, Do it like that! I've got to do it! I agree that Adam Sandler puts in a great performance and the chemistry of Drew Barrymore is excellent! Proved again in 51st Dates. The soundtrack is also really good. I did laugh when you said that women's, women tend to like Big Daddy, as that and The Wedding Singer were always my favourites. Maybe we could do another fan club watch-along of an Adam Sandler film. Of course, the famous fan club watch-along. <laughs> Keep up with the five-star content. Emma, thank you for listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Um, uh, we're going to play a song now and then we're going to get our guest on. Thank you for all of the fan mail. We really like it and um, it makes us feel like we're not alone in the these COVID times. Eddie Amorakani's theme from the thing. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Nathaniel Metcalf. And we are now joined live at Camp Covid by, uh, well, we're not live, we're pre-recorded on a Wednesday, but you, uh, <laughs> any, everyone knows. Anyway, we're live, live, live in, live, I'm doing Live in principle. Live in the studio. We're now live-ish. Joined, live-ish. We're live-ish. joined by uh, a stand-up comedian legend, Mr. Jason Manford. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really good. Sorry, I don't know what I pressed there. Uh, yeah, I'm really good, thanks. I'm really good. I'm. I'm. Uh, I feel like I used to be a comedian, and now I'm an IT consultant and part-time teacher. <laughs> How are you? I mean, it's quite a boring conversation by this point. But <laughs> how are you coping with it, uh, with the current situation? I'm sort of all right. I sort of. I just have to keep. Uh, just got. I just got to keep busy, Nick. Just got to keep busy. Keep your mind busy. Um, I feel all right, really. I mean, because the the kids obviously keep your your day busy, and then I just keep giving them, setting myself goals. So we do a stand up thing on a Thursday. I've got some driving gigs. I've got various other things that are going on, and but I've not done. Essentially, what, what I'm trying to say is having the time wasn't the thing that was stopping me doing stuff. Right. So uh, that's what I've realised about myself, and I'm slightly disappointed in myself as a as a human being. I mean, I've done nothing. I've got a mate who's written a book. I've not even read one. Yeah, and that's not that's not actually true, is it? You've done loads of stuff. <laughs> not as much as I thought. Oh, not not as much stuff that I thought I had the capacity for. Yeah, you know, sure. but it is also it's like if, when you're given. I mean, it's not like it's. In a way, it's a gift. There are positives to be had for like it. Like a dark gift. But, yeah, it's just yeah. like, it is just about making the best out of the situation as opposed to going, well, fine, now I can write Now I can write my novel. Now I can write my screenplay. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you'd think that in an ideal world, you could do that. But, essentially, if you can get up and eat and maybe wash yourself every day, that's yeah. an achievement sometimes. Um, Agreed. I don't have kids. No. 
So you're homeschooling on top of all of this? Yes. Yeah, so I have six children, Nick. So I've got your share. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, six kids. And um, they, yeah, so that's, and they're all under 10 as well. They're all 10 and under. So it's full on homeschooling. I mean, saying that, you know, we're into a system now. I don't know what teachers do all day. We're done for 11. So I, I don't know how they keep dragging it out to our three, these teachers. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're done and dusted. You've basically got an entire school. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm off to, off to registered just to have a minute in, in this house. Yeah, it's pretty That's, full on. So what do you teach? I teach all the things. Um, I well, we've just done maths. Uh, as I said, when I, when I just uh, came on to you then, was just, my daughter's just had a maths meltdown. It, what's been interesting is finding out how thick I was. When it comes to like, <laughs> you know, when you're sort of like googling, uh, like googling stuff, my daughter's like, "Are you on the phone?" I'm like, "No, no, I'm not." She's like, "Are you googling what is an adverb?" Uh, you know, I'm like, "Yeah, I am." <laughs> so I just forgot. It's how quick you forgot everything from from when you were at school because it's not it's not new stuff. Like these things were all the same things. You've just they've just left you. I must think I know that stuff anymore. Like I think uh, I, I know what it was. Yeah. But like, if I was, if you held a gun at my head now, I'd struggle. Yeah, I'm, I know. And yet the brain. Uh, uh, yeah, you could probably sing every single word of the, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel Air theme tune. Absolutely. But everything, everything else is gone. It's mental, isn't it? What your brain's gone. Ah, I'm going to keep this. <laughs> and then, but, but so we were t we were talking a couple of weeks ago about there being sort of like a spike in the population. I, mm. I do think that it was kind of like, I do think that at the beginning of all this, I did sort of assume there would be kind of like a cut-off point to um, lockdown instead of it just sort of like petering out. Yeah, so yeah. I did sort yeah. of imagine there was going to be like, oh, and on, you know, the 5th of whatever, we're all allowed out of our houses and then there'd be a big party and then there'd be a huge spike in population. That doesn't yeah. seem like that's going to happen. No. But do you think that there may be a spike in um, geniuses uh, oh. where everyone's had to stay, everyone with kids has had to stay in and homeschool them and uh, their intelligence is going to skyrocket. I, I mean, now I know you've not got kids because if you, if you think... <laughs> <laughs> if you think kids are getting cleverer because they've not been with teachers... Not kids, <laughs> the parents. Oh, parents, you mean? Oh, I parents, see. Jason. Oh, I see. Um... No, absolutely not. I mean, even half an hour ago, whatever I was teaching her has gone out of my head. Like, so that is not, no, definitely not. Although I do think there's, what what will happen is a newfound respect for teachers. Like, I think the complaining to teachers, blaming teachers, all that will, will have gone. Next time you, you know, you're in school complaining about something, the teacher can literally go, would you want to have a go yourself again? And you go, oh, no, 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 and I'll leave it. No, you're all right, whatever you say. There will be sort of like a grace period where everyone is so grateful that, that someone is there to take their kids off their hands. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be stood at the gates for the full seven hours just clapping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's all right then. That's all right. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I've been on my own for the, most of all of this. And now have you found that then, being on your own? Um... Fine. It sounds like a dream, but obviously I can imagine it can be hard at times. It turns out that I, I, I'm fine with my own company, which I didn't realise. It took me a while to... I think I, I thought, well, I sound like a nightmare, so I better keep busy. And mm. then when you're actually forced to spend time by yourself, you go, uh, 
I've got to know myself again. And, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's he like? He's he's a he's a dashing kind of guy. <laughs> he's nice, uh, yeah, he's a nice fella. He's got dreamy eyes. And, uh, he's, <laughs> he's just about my height. Um, <laughs> what have you done with that time then? What have you have you have you like? I was saying I've not even read a book. Like, have you have you read all the books or what? No. All the box sets or what? What have you done? No, but I'm like a basket case normally. So I've sort of like I spent a month. Uh, not drinking and um, uh, working out my brain, my mm. mental health stuff. And then since then, I've just sort of like, just been sort of like, I do bits of work here and there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as it, I've, I've been writing music. Um, I'm trying to write lots of uh, TV and, and, mm-hmm. and treatments, but I find it difficult because it's, yeah, all, yeah. it's all self-motivated at the moment because there yeah. don't seem to be any sort of like concrete deadlines anywhere. No, so, I struggle with that. Yeah, I must say. I've been like recycling. Um, I've been creating and getting rid of so much recycling. I basically <laughs> live in a perpetual bottle bank. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's just kind of it's, it's weird. You go. I, I'm a lot. I'm a lot happier than. It's weird because I, I keep saying that there's two things that are going on. There's an international global crisis where people are genuinely suffering and having an awful time, mm. and there's also kind of like. The thing that you can't do anything about is the fact that you kind of like we're we're in lockdown, and it's how do you deal with that? And you, yeah. you you've got to sort you've got to you can't be depressed about it for four months. You've got to sort of be able to make the the best out of the situation. Mm. And I think that I've just really tried to sort of like. Um, well, it sounds like you have. Well, I've sort of dealt Fair with play. the things that I can deal with. Yeah. yeah. No, I feel a bit like that. I, I I keep saying to myself, you know, I would never have given myself this time off work in my whole career. No, you know, and I'd have been what? full on, you know, Tommy Cooper, you know, right on stage, gone. That's that was that was always in my head of like I'll work till the end, and so it being forced upon you, you know, there was a worrisome moment at the beginning where I thought I'm actually gonna have to retrain myself to be a dad and a husband and you know a neighbour and all these things that I've sort of. Not avoided, but I've sort of not had to do because I've been away on tour or I go, in my head, I think, well, working is the thing that I bring into this family, you know. So um, it's uh, it's been, yeah, it's been a, interesting. And I thought it was going to be a nightmare. The first week I said to my wife, we have never spent this much time with each other. And she said, we'll be fine. It'll be absolutely fine. Because she's, you know, independent. Uh, she's a TV producer. You know, she's been, she used to be in charge of lots of people. And suddenly it was just us in the house, these two headstrong people. And I thought, maybe it'll be all right. And then I walked into the kitchen uh, behind her once. And she snapped at me. This is like th- day three. She went, are you following me? <laughs> I was like, it's the kitchen. <laughs> this is going to be a long lockdown. <laughs> and actually, that was the last time we had any, <laughs> any weirdness. And it's been a, an absolute delight. How do you feel about the prospect of going back to work though? You you can't wait, or are you like? No, I'm nervous about it. I'm, well, and again, like you said, it with it petering out, it's not as if because so I've got a tour. I had a tour cancelled. I was in the middle of a musical tour, and that got cancelled. And then I was sort of off around this time anyway. I, I booked it off to write and and get prepared for the next tour, Edinburgh Festival in August, and then you know head up head out on tour in September. And those dates are still in the diary. I mean. I don't know if they're in everybody's diary, but they're in my very optimistic diary. Have they officially cancelled Edinburgh yet? No, uh, Edinburgh's gone, yeah. Edinburgh's gone. Uh, But after that, I sort of said, right, let's get to... Because the world changes so quickly. I said, look, let's just 
let's keep stuff in the diary until we have to get it changed. So that's sort of what I've done. I think, right, middle of August, I'll look at cancelling September. That's the way, that's how fast this pandemic can change. So, uh, so it's all still in there at the moment. Uh, but yeah, so I, I'm sort of slightly nervous about going back, but at the same time, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, I'm, 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 to actually getting back and doing my job. Have you written the show? Oh, God. <laughs> what is it? I see, I'm sort of like at a point where people are like, do you want to do, do, do a gig on Zoom? Yeah. And I'm like, fuck no. But, <laughs> but I guess you have to because, you know, you can get a bit of money here and there to do it. But it's just yeah. like the Zoom gigs. Are all, but then it's just like, what? How do you... How do you get back to stand-up comedy after this? It's yeah. Just like, I mean, Mike... Is, is everyone going to do a gig? Is, is everyone going to be doing material about lockdown? About this. I know. I, did, I must say, I did worry about that. I thought, God, am I writing? Cause I, so I've been doing these online Zoom gigs for the last few weeks now, and it's been lovely just to have something to aim for. I, I'm only really selling it to my fans, my people who already like me, so I'm not worrying about... You know what does, does <laughs> think in the middle of nowhere? I'm, I, I, these people are already already on side, <laughs> and uh, and it's been lovely. And I got some nice friends in and guests, comics to come in and and, and do a bit, and uh, and people get paid to do it, and so it's been lovely. It's been really nice, and it's been nice to write jokes about it. But it's so hard because firstly, there's not much news other than covid so you're looking for the new stuff you're like what's happened here or some fella in thailand's stolen a load of flip-flops to have sex with i reckon i get five minutes out of that i don't know because uh, the rest of it is lockdown covid boris trump like it's the same it's basically just taking over brexit like i long for brexit i think, oh, wish brexit was still in uh still the main subject and i'm not a political comic at all so it's um yeah i must say i, I think it'll be a lot of people talking about lockdown and what i'm trying to do in the stuff that I'm writing for, because those those tour dates in September, October, November were, were warm up gigs anyway for my main tour in in January. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to be doing an hour of. No, oh, I, what, what about banana bread? Like, I don't fancy that. I don't be, think people want to hear it either. No. I think at the start of lockdown, there's this idea that it would be impossible to write stuff yeah. because who knows what the world's going to be like at the end. Yes. Whereas yeah. actually now it sort of feels like we're on the second half of it. It doesn't mm. feel like. Actually, I think people just want to laugh, and I think yeah. that's mainly what it is. And people aren't going to want to talk about it. Talk about anything else. You yeah. can probably talk about aspects of it. Like it's probably funny talking about teaching your kids. People like things like that, yeah. but I don't think people want to talk about a global pandemic and the. No, 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 no. Exactly. It's, it's your take on what on what you've been through. I guess the shared experience. But I write when I leave the house and stuff happens to me and then I yeah. go, well, this is the thing. You know, like my last mm. show was like a series of anecdotes about stuff that had happened in my life. Yeah, yeah, tied yeah. Tied together and making to a show. It's just like, I can't even remember what normal life was like, really. It's just <laughs> kind of like, I'm, I, I just, I literally, I'm, I'm yeah, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I know that I don't want to write about the pandemic. No. And I and I'm not and I'm not a political comedian in the mm. first place anyway. I just don't know how you can go back without at least addressing it slightly. I think I think there's always going to be you know a moment of of having to address it. Like that's just that's the sort of elephant in the room, and I think that's sort of fine. And you can have a bit you know a couple of minutes about that. I'd already sort of had the idea of my next tour before all this kicked off, so I'd already had this. So I, I my next tour is called Like Me. 
and it was uh, sort of about the the modern obsession with being liked and how now, uh, you know, even just getting a like off Facebook, you know, psychologists say releases uh, the same endorphins as, uh, you know, drugs or alcohol or, you know, those sort of sex and whatnot, gambling and stuff. And I thought that's really uh, quite fascinating because I'm also obsessed with being liked and that is sometimes very difficult when you're in a job that we do because obviously not everybody's going to like you and why focus on the people who don't when the people who do are the ones buying the tickets and various things and then and also in parenting you know parenting's a very difficult situation because you've got children who you adore but sometimes they think you're a bit of a dick and <laughs> so that's hard when the person you love the most in the world thinks you're a dick you know so i just thought oh, this will be a good topic and i had that same moment uh, that you just said there where i thought is this even going to be relevant? Like when all this finishes, this all the pandemic's finished. But I think it will be. Like you said, I think we will get back to a new normal, and um, whatever that is, the new normal, this phrase that we keep using. But um, yeah, I think well, I think people will. And like you said, they'll be they'll be gagging for something to take their mind off it. Yeah. See, okay. Well, you've got a bunch of stuff coming up this week, haven't you? So you yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So we do uh, the weekly stand-up, which is Thursday nights, um, and th that's the live gig that we stream from this very room that I'm in now. Um, and we have got uh, we've got Sarah Pascoe this week. We have got uh, Amy Silverberg from uh, who's dialing in from LA. Stu Goldsmith. Uh, we've got Nathan Caton and Alfie Bo, a friend of mine, is dropping in for a chat as well. And there's some like little sketches and and bits and bobs that other comics have done and sent me, and we play them out as well. And it's like an hour, an hour and a half, and it's uh, it's a it's a it's a bit of a laugh really, and and I just write you know write a bit of a monologue about stuff that's going on in the week and and that's been quite fun. And then this this which I hope doesn't become the new normal, but I'm very glad to be a guinea pig. Uh, these driving gigs, I'm doing these two driving gigs in Brent Cross. Have you seen these? Yeah, I saw I saw Mark Watson take a picture of it yesterday, yeah. and it was like, all he's seeing in front of him it's are cars. <laughs> yeah. And I think the best you could hope for, you'd have to pretend they were Transformers, really, to get the <laughs> best out of it. I'm just worried about people flashing and, and, and window wiping and whatever in the middle of a car park and like it's like a dog in sight and you're just, <laughs> you're just on stage like it's gonna be weird i spoke to um daniel sloss the other day because he did the first weekend and he actually said it's a lot of fun him and kai humphreys did the, f the first weekend they said it's weird <laughs> because there's no laughter but what they've done you're gonna go mad for this what they've obviously done is said honk your horn if you're laughing so where the laughter is <laughs> It's just beep, honk in, in the placement of it. So it's going to be absolutely nuts. But well, I, the I, nice I, thing about that is, what if they don't honk? What if they don't <laughs> honk? Or even worse, you just see someone drive off. Because <laughs> at least in a theatre, you can duck out in the dark. But <laughs> Or aim for you. That would be... That'd <laughs> yeah, be, that would be the worst. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, I get anxious about normal gigs. I, I know, right? I've not built for this. I saw one online yesterday that uh, Sally Ann Haywood and um, I think Steve, uh, I can't remember his name now, down in Bristol anyway, he's got, he runs a few gigs in Bristol, the Comedy Box and whatever. And they were doing one in a pub garden, it looked like. So they, set, they put this picture and it was like a stage with a wooden frame. They got a Perspex on the front of the stage and everyone sat outside, socially distant, and there's like maybe 40 people there and they're all sort of sat along tables 
And it was the weirdest thing to see because six months ago, if I'd have, see, if I'd have turned up and that was the gig, I'd have been on the phone to my agent. What the hell is this? This is absolute dog shit. I'm not doing this gig. It's terrible. People aren't even facing the screens. There's a Perspex thing here. The sound's not right. Uh, there's only 40 people in. And now when I saw the picture, I thought, I wonder if I could do my full tour like that. That looks amazing. <laughs> so we've, we've all sort of changed it, you know. I think I saw those pictures as yeah. well. My, my first instinct was, um, oh, that's great, though, because they couldn't throw stuff. <laughs> yeah, like that, <laughs> scene, that scene in Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, yeah. <laughs> Raw hide, yeah. It'd be good for mimes, though, because they wouldn't even need oh, to... Oh, the, the, the mime is king in this uh, new novel. <laughs> How, do, you, do you miss singing, Jason? Um, do I miss, uh, singing? Yeah, I do really. Yeah. Because like I said, I was in the middle of a, um, I was in the middle of a musical tour, uh, when this all kicked off and I still have four weeks left and to go from eight shows a week, you know, in, in, in that environment as well with a, with a, with essentially a family, you know, you, you, when you're in a musical, you, you meet in, we met in August rehearsals, high intensity, uh, rehearsals, then off on tour into the West end for five or six weeks really you know 11 shows a week in the west end and back on tour and you're living in each other's pockets and you know and then suddenly like overnight from uh being with these people every day working you know doing this show every night so it's gone you're in the car home with your with your box in the back mm. and uh and driving back back to uh back to nor what, what was normal life beforehand and that's been very odd you know because you know, you've even the WhatsApp group's gone quiet. You know, you think, crikey, this is weird that these people I saw more than my own family for so many, so many weeks and months, uh, is, and it's gone. You know, and I can't remember last time I spoke to, to someone. Say goodbye or have a big send off or anything, do you? Not really, no, no. We did, we did one last gig on the Monday night at Leicester Haymarket, which now sadly is one of the one of the venues that has has gone uh, under. And that was the Monday night, and weirdly, I sort of I did a speech on the Monday night after the show, even though we had the full week booked um, to sort of say, look, this might be the last one, and it and it did end up being the last one, and there was uh, yeah, there was a lot of tears, and it was uh, it was very upsetting, but um, but you know, it, like it's hard because, and I talk about this in my last show, which is the way this country is set up, or maybe it's the world, I don't know, maybe it's the modern world, but the way this, and you see it on social media a lot, is. You feel like you can't be upset about something because there's worse things going on. Mm. Yeah. And it, it pisses me off about about the way people are. So you say something like, oh, I'm really upset that my show has been cancelled and I miss those people. And someone comes straight back in, well, yeah, well, this person's grand's just died. So you got, <laughs> like, my problems are the worst problems to me. I'll empathise with your problems, but to me, my problems are the worst problems to me. That's how... That's how it works, you know. And for some reason, we've we've got to this point where people just have this linear thing now, where where problems are on the scale, and 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 it affects your own mental health as well. Because I start thinking of it myself like that. I think, oh well, I shouldn't complain mm. that you know the bill I've had to send the builders home and they can't f finish an extension because even though that's financially fucking crippling, because there is this other thing going on in the world, you know. Yeah. And, and it, I feel like there's something going on with people. Maybe it's social media that's not healthy or whatever. But it's like when you were a kid and your mum said, you were like, I'm starving. Your mum went, well, there's kids in Africa and they are starving. You're like, well, that's true, but I'm still hungry. That <laughs> fact hasn't filled me up, has it, mum? 
I think that there's, there was a lot of that, certainly at the beginning of lockdown with people. There was this thing that everyone had to go, but of course I'm lucky because yes. I've, got, I've, got <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. I've got that. Rather than acknowledging that it is still shit. Yeah. Like, it is like a terrible time. But the second the... you say anything positive was yeah, like the... almost that you, you weren't supposed to. The rug was pulled out from everybody. You know, for whatever, whatever. I mean, even Prince Charles got it. You know, at one point, so <laughs> it, it it didn't matter. And I was like, absolutely, like you said, there is a, a, there was obviously going to be people suffering worse and stuff. But for you yourself, it's okay to say, God, I'm really struggling with this, and I'm really finding this really hard, and it's upsetting, and it, and I, and I don't, I can't see an end in sight, whatever. It doesn't it doesn't take anything away from anybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it's yeah. I mean. That comes up a lot. Mm. It comes up a lot with, um, it's not just about suffering. It's with, um, I don't know, I'm going to go off one of my bitter rants. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, it's, 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 it, you can see it in other places, like with, with success. And yeah. some people see that other people's success takes away from their success. And you go, no, it's a different, it's somebody else's success. Yes, different. You, know, you can be happy for other people without it directly. It's not, or it's like, um, it's like siblings competing for their parents' love, and you go, "Well, love isn't a cake that is finer." <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 not like, "Oh, well, you've had a slice, and that means there's less for everyone else." Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's infinite, and I think you just have to be rational about stuff, and you have to be empathetic for other people. But yeah, you can acknowledge your own um, successes and weaknesses without that having any impact on. Uh, on other people and if other people aren't being rational then it's your yeah. job to kind of like wave that flag and just go come on guys let's think about this uh, uh, yeah so, I've definitely got forward. less patience I think th now than I had at the beginning I was very much like well we're all in this together and you know and, and then now like somebody messaged me the other day when I said about uh, about working I said oh god I've worked, I feel like I've worked really hard this week uh, you know, because I've been writing this set for the for, for the, the weekly stand-up. Um, I drove down to Kent to see the in-laws and stuff with, uh, and whatnot, and I said, like, oh, I'm knackered today. And uh, and somebody, like, came at me, like, on Twitter. <laughs> you know, you don't know the meaning of tired, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, all right. I said, why? What do you do? And he said, uh, he, said he was a driver, a truck driver. I said, you know what the mad thing is, mate? I said, I could do your job, but you could never do mine. And I thought, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna come out for all guns are blazing. And he was living about it. He went, "What do you mean?" I said, "You couldn't." I said, "I can't. I could do your job." No, I'm, I said, "No, no. I could train to do your job. I could do the. I could pass the test, and I could become what you do." I said, "But it doesn't matter how much you work at becoming me. You could never do what I do." And I thought, "Fuck it. I'm gonna start being this guy. I like this guy better." <laughs> A bit more confident about what he does. <laughs> I just stick to knob jokes. <laughs> you Still a specialist. <laughs> so, so tell us about all this PPE stuff you've been doing. Um, what do you mean by that? Sorry. But it says you were hailed as a superhero. Oh right, oh. sorry. Yeah, no, that was. I mean, Christ, superhero. I mean, that's a bit. That's a bit much. Guardian. Guardian. That's a bit much. That's, that's a, a bit much. Guardian of the people. <laughs> What about uh, Defender of the Nation, something like that? <laughs> Superhero seems too much. No, it was, um, I was doing, <laughs> I mean, again, it got totally blown out of proportion. I did one shift for Iceland, 
where I went and delivered a load of stuff. I'd been doing other bits and bobs. I did some driving for the NHS and, and various stuff just to get us out of the house more than anything. And uh, an Iceland very kindly said, uh, would, I, would you come and do a shift for us and we'll make a donation to your children's charity that, uh, that are obviously not making any money at the moment because we're all in lockdown. And so I did a lovely shift, and it was great fun. I had a good laugh with, with, with the staff there, and I had my Iceland uniform on, delivered a few bits, uh, two or three people, like, not a clue, just, you were supposed to be here 20 minutes ago, like, not asked at all. Um, one person half recognised me, and then saw the photographer that Iceland had sent as well, and I think for a split second they thought, am I the millionth customer? Like, I think that's what popped <laughs> into their heads. <laughs> so they were very disappointed. Um, and so I did that, and it was good. And then weirdly, out of nowhere, I'm driving back to the to the depot and uh, a cyclist comes into the middle of the road, gets run over. And obviously everyone's sort of socially distanced and not like what to do, you know, but it's an, an emergency. And I um, I had COVID back in March and uh, and so I was tested and, and, and tested positive for the antibodies. Whether you can catch it again or not is still up for debate, but at the moment... Nobody has, caught it a second time. So I, because I could see people struggling, I sort of got out my van and was like, I've got the antibodies. Like, I felt like a superhero. I was like, I'm like Spider-Man or something. I've got it, like a big A on my chest. I've got the antibodies. And I sort of helped this fella up, you know, like anybody would. I sort of helped this, or well, not up, I helped him back down, to be honest, because he, he needed to get on the floor. And then some ambulance staff came and, and, and some nearby uh, medical people came to help. And I had a load of PPE stuff in the in the van. Uh, because that's what Iceland do for all their drivers, and I just gave it to them to sort of say, oh, there you go, and everyone was very grateful. So it wasn't necessarily a... Um, I think it would be a very boring uh, Marvel film uh, if I, if it was, in fact, a superhero, which was essentially giving some masks to an ambulance man who didn't have some. <laughs> but it must have looked good, though, with you. Like, not only are you the one who's getting out to help him, but you've also got all the gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I must say it was like a double whammy of help. Like, if I'd have died right then, I reckon I'd have been straight in. All right, Peter, you've seen what I've been doing this morning. <laughs> Can we just clarify that it wasn't you that hit him in the first place? It was. <laughs> because all of this is for nothing if you were the prick that fucking ran him over. Yeah. No, it wasn't me who hit him, yeah. Imagine I just left that bit out. And then I, would, <laughs> then I got out and helped the guy. How good I am. <laughs> I've got the antibodies. I've got the antibodies. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, do you want a mask? I've got a mask. I've got a mask. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, when you did Sweeney Todd? Oh, crikey, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, that was in 2012. That was the first musical I ever did. And I was... Because um, you've done... got an amazing voice. Well, thank you very much, Nick. That means a lot coming from you. I don't know if you remember, but we did a charity gig uh, for Neil Webster where we had to do, um, I think we had to do like, Beatles songs and Rolling Stones songs. Oh, yeah, that's right, with the band, I don't yeah. think we even met properly. No, no. We sort of, like, were passing ships in the night. That's right. But, um, but yeah, I saw you there and you, and you were singing. I can't remember what you were saying. I can't remember what oh. I was singing. No, but, um, myself, no. but yeah, you've got a, you've got an amazing voice. And, well, my family were all singers, and uh, like my gran was a lead singer of a band. They were like they came over from Dublin in the fifties. They were like a little duo, my grandparents, and then they had eleven children, taught them all to sing and play instruments. And so my weekends were even as a kid were filled going to pubs and bars and and watching the family play and you'd get up and sing a song and and all that and there's some lovely voices in our family and and even now a lot of them are still singing in the clubs and some of them are uh, 
like my my uncle Dennis is a Michael Bublé impersonator, uh, and my uh, uncle Brendan is uh, Neil Diamond of a, of a Friday night, uh, Neil Diamante, and uh, and they you know they love it you know they're great. So I've always sung, and then so I said to my agent, look, I'd really love to do a musical. And she was like, look, you're on. I was like captain on eight or ten cats, I think, by then. And I was doing, you know, doing all right. But, uh, and I think I'd done a sh- I'd had my, a show on BBC at some point, a sports thing. Anyway, that was that. And I just kept saying to her, I'd love to do a musical. But as you know, there's no money in musicals. So she, it wasn't the, the main thing she was looking for when she was looking for work. And so in Spotlight, the, the sort of actor's um, uh, newspaper of, of jobs, it just came up. It just said, looking for someone to cover... During the Olympics, this was 2012 Olympics, during the London Olympic Games, to cover for the part of Pirelli in uh, the West End production of Sweeney Todd, uh, needs to be able to sing opera. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, well, let's put, put your name down, get an audition for it, you know, see if you can win them over in the room. And as it happens, a couple of years before, I'd, done some, I'd actually trained to sing opera for a... Uh, children's um, the children's foundation or children's charity I can't remember what it was now but it was for them and so I went and did the audition I did about four or five auditions I get, get called back and eventually got this part in Sweeney Todd Michael Ball was Sweeney Todd uh, Imelda Staunton was in it as well and uh, and I got to play um, the, 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 the Adolfo Pirelli which is one of the best parts in the you can get to be honest because he's dead by half eight <laughs> so it's mostly box sets I watched all of The Wire and then came back out for the bow so it was, I absolutely loved it Because it's not just opera though is it because it's Stephen Sondheim Yeah It's tricky isn't it Oh it's, it's really it's really tough I mean I remember it's only one, well one and a bit songs that Pirelli sings and I still was on it for th- probably four weeks I think before I started rehearsals I was with Jonathan Kent just every day going in. And I'm talking like, you know, nine till five doing one song mm. to get this Sondheim, the little flourishes and, and the humour, because he's very funny, Sondheim as well. He's got some great turns of phrases. And uh, and it was just, it was an absolute ball. I mean, it was so much fun. And I, I get to shave, I get to sort of shave a guy's face and, and splatter him with... Uh, with the with the shaving foam, and uh, obviously every night sort of put a little bit extra water in that, and just all over the front row, and like <laughs> it was such a laugh. I loved it, loved it. Is it I, I I I didn't see you in it, but I did see that production um, with Michael mm. Ball and Amanda Staunton. Yeah, and I just thought it was incredible. It was I think wonderful. It's, yeah, it's really lucky to have been part of that oh well you worked for it but i mean I yeah mean, i mean i was so lucky I, I think i did i think i did 10 weeks in total and um uh, and then the guy came back uh from he was doing an actual opera in italy the guy playing my the, the, the part that i did um but it was it was it was just wonderful and and i think also it was the first time that i'd been part of a team like i'd always worked by myself as a stand-up and i just fell in love with that i just fell in love with this being part of a group and a family. I'd never had that in, in my professional life before. And, uh, and I thought I'd love to do more of it. Do you think you got into stand-up because of, uh, through through music, you know, the, if, if your family were always mm. on stage performing and stuff, it kind of made you feel comfortable on stage and it was like a natural progression? Yeah, I think so. I had a couple of really funny uncles as well who would talk between the songs, you know, and that, and often their talking would be as long as, 
the, the songs and they would have people in stitches, you know. And and so I, I was always, yeah, I was always aware of that. I was always aware of the funny, you know, I was always aware of what was funny. And my dad was a big comedy fan, so we'd we'd have, you know, Dave Allen and Les Dawson and, you know, my, my parents would watch a lot of stand-up. Um, and then sort of Ben Elton and, you know, stuff like that as I was, as I was getting a little bit older. I... I think that gave me the confidence to get on stage in the first place because I started stand up at 16 so uh which is um which is really young to not only want to start stand up but for an audience to even think about listening. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean to go who the fuck is this 16 year old thinking he's going to tell us about the world, you know. So did you have trouble getting gigs and stuff like getting into the clubs? Yeah, some of them some gigs I couldn't get, you know, when I first started because I was I was too young or there was like, you know, they were very strict on being on first, so you were out for nine o'clock, and <laughs> I had a couple of gigs like that, you know, and and just your mum having to drive you <laughs> to gigs. I remember doing one in Wales for a um, a rugby club, and uh, I got booked a Jeff Whiting gig in uh, in uh, in South Wales in Newport, and driving down there, it was like three hundred quid for this gig, and I'd never been paid more than maybe thirty quid before, so it was like a corporate. And I was like, wow, 300 quid. So I said to mum, you take me and I'll pay the petrol and that. We had a lovely drive down and I got in there and I absolutely died a death. Like it was awful. <laughs> and, um, and then just had to drive, you know, drive back. But I, I remember thinking, God, this is the dream. <laughs> Even after... <laughs> I've had some of my worst ever gigs in Newport, so... <laughs> well, that's me and you, but... I don't think it's necessarily you. Well, my one, I, I always feel a bit hard done to in my one because I remember it was an awards evening and the guy was giving out awards to everybody. Got this award, this award, this award. And then he said... Uh, and I'm sort of sat there at the table having dinner with everybody, which is never, never do that. Never have dinner with them. <laughs> that's the trick. And he said... He was going, right, sir... So we got one more award to give out now. He, I'm, I'll try the accent. I'm not very good at things. But he said, hey, we got one more award to give out now. And this is a very special award because I go to a young lad. We've, this is the youngest recipient of this award we've ever had because uh, uh, it's the Lifetime Achievement Award. And this recipient is only 24 years old uh, because we you know he was our, our best player uh, of the last few seasons. And then he had a terrible injury. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he'll never... They never play again. And there's a lad in a wheelchair, like, on the next table, like, sort of tearing his eye and stuff. And everyone's got tears in their eyes. I'm like, OK, I'm reading the room. He says, so I just want to give this award to uh, yeah, Stuart, you know, just to say, you are the heart of this club. And uh, no matter what happens going forward, we'll always be there for you. We, we thought one day we'd see you play for Wales and we, we're, we're so proud of uh, everything you've done to recover. And, and he goes off and he starts crying, this guy. I just can't believe you're like a son to me. And this guy wheels up and gets his award and he's a big hug and, you know, and the whole room's on the feet clapping. And he goes, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome your comedian, Jason Mavis. <laughs> like, hey, you know, uh, you know when you're in Tesco? <laughs> so I still think, well, I don't think anyone would have done well at that. Tell us about the Mars Singer. You were on that earlier. Oh, time. yeah, that. Now, that was a laugh. <laughs> i got to say. Great show. I loved it as a show because you sort of think... Like, you go in a bit like, yeah. is this? I was the same, mate. I was the same. I was like, right, this will sort the VAT out. Like, that's sort of what, you know, when you sort of do a show like that, you think, oh. But it was made by a lot, a few people who I'd worked with before 
who I really trusted to make brilliant TV shows, and they, and, and they, they had made brilliant TV shows. And I was doing bits and bobs at ITV, and they said, oh, we'd love you to be on it. And I thought they meant as a judge or as a host or whatever, you know. And uh, they said, oh, no, we want you to be a contestant. And I said, oh, but what's it going to be? Is it like me? And then some bloke nobody knows from only weighs Essex and some guy who used to be on The X Factor. They said, no, we promise. It's good. We're, we're looking for stellar people, people that when you pull the mask off, you go, oh, it's that person, you know. Mm. And which I think, you know, nine, nine out of ten, I think they, they pretty much nailed it, you know. And so... I said, all right, yeah, I'll do it. And then they sent me the designs for the costume, said, what do you fancy? You can be the tree or the hedgehog. I said, hedgehog, all day long. I don't even need to look at it. And I got this design of this, like, in fact, I've got him here. I know you can't see it on the radio, but I've got a little a copy of, uh, that's the steampunk hedgehog. Uh, that was, that's how well designed it is. And, uh, and, and I, I was the hedgehog, and they, and they let me pick my songs. And, and I just loved it because it was, it was the first time that you could sing in front of people where they didn't have a, you know, preconceived idea of of what you are or who you are, what you could do, and none of that sort of stay in your lane mentality. It was like, just go for it and and sing. and I so I ended up singing in a totally different way than I probably would have if if people knew it was me. I think it was like it's sort of a perfect TV format. I think, yeah. it's, like, it's, got, it's sort of got everything, and it, I think it's really hard to be cynical about because it's. It's, yeah, what do you want it to be? All, you know, what do yeah. you want it to be? Yeah. My TV wasn't working. Has, it hasn't been working since December. Right. And I've just got it working this week. So I've missed out on every oh, you cultural it, moment <laughs> that's united us as a people. Yeah. And um, so what? what is The mass Singer? Okay, let me tell you what this show is. It is, like, this is where it'll sell straight away. It's a Korean format. <laughs> You're like, I'm in. <laughs> so it's a Korean format, uh, which sold to America, and then the Americans, it went very well in America, uh, where they would have very well-known... I mean, the Americans really went for it. They had, a, like, Aretha Franklin dressed as a butterfly. Like, unbelievable. But everyone's underneath these masks. And they could be anybody. They could be a sports person, they could be a comedian, they could be a, a, a proper singer, um, an actor, whatever it is. And there's a celebrity panel... And they would, uh, and they would be on every week. Of, and they're not really judges because it's not a singing competition. It's sort of a, a who sung it, I guess. So you're trying to guess who the person is under the mask. And there's little clue packages and uh, so, bits. Is it like a singing version of Through the Keyhole? It's exactly. I think, yes, that's how I would sell it. Yeah, that's how I would sell it. So you've got to try and guess who they are from their voice, but also from the little clues that they sort of uh, that they give along the way. And the, but the secrecy around it was it was like mi5 like it was unbelievable so when i <laughs> when i signed up for it i had to sign an nda to say i wouldn't tell any obviously i told my wife but i didn't tell my own children i was doing it i didn't tell my mother i didn't tell anybody i was doing this show because this nda is like and i'm really pleased that i didn't because they got to enjoy the show and then find out it was me and it was an extra level of an extra level of fun um but like you would so with, and this is no exaggeration you would get picked up in central London when I was I was actually rehearsing for a musical at the time. So you get picked up in central London in a nice car, in the back of this car, and then about f half an hour outside of the studio, you have to put a hoodie on, a balaclava, black gloves, and a visor over your head. And a T-shirt, the, 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 the hoodie would say, do not speak to me, don't speak to me. 
on the, which I've actually kept for the train. And uh, <laughs> I've got this still now. And you would do that, and then you would get into the, uh, the studio, and genuinely no one would talk to you. No one knew who you were. There was like three people who knew who you were. Some exec at ITV, a producer on the show, and your sort of one person who you, you went to. And I didn't know who the other contestants were. Everyone was in a mask all the time. You were hidden in your room until it was your time to do your um, to do your song, and the secrecy around it was it was hilarious. Like it was. If so anyone awesome. saw that, it would look like you'd see a hostage being taken or something. The yeah, it was. <laughs> and, and and just like there's something quite exhilarating about walking through a door and not saying thanks. Like I don't know what it is. Like because I've never done that in your life. Just sort of just not saying thank you. Just walking through because that's that's who you are now. And um, I think like Catherine Jenkins came third. I came second, and uh, Nicola Roberts won won the thing. And uh, I thought, crikey, this! And that was in January. Thinking, God, this this year's weird. How have I just beat Catherine Jenkins in a singing competition? And then the world just got decidedly weirder after that. Yeah, but you like, was there anyone who the judges guessed that you were offended by? Was anyone you went, unbelievable? Not, not really. I wasn't offended. So uh, Michael Ball came up a lot. Uh, Michael Crawford a few times. Alexander Armstrong and Alfie Bow. And uh, the funny thing was, I rang Alfie one Saturday, or one, one weekday, and I said, uh, I said, oh, have you been watching this mass Singer? I keep getting loads of tweets about it on a Saturday, people th thinking it's me. And he said, so do I. I keep getting these tweets, people saying it's me. And he said, I said, have you watched it yet? He said, I just watched it on Catch Up the other day to see who this hedgehog was to find out. He said, so I watched him sing a song and I thought to myself, I'm not that shit at singing, am I? <laughs> so I'm on the phone like, all right, well, is he not good then? He said, well, he's all right, but he's, his breathing's all over the place. I was like, maybe the mask's heavy. Maybe the mask is heavy, Alfie. <laughs> So when eventually I got the, you know, the mask came off and it was real to, revealed to be me, he rang me up with a with his tail between his legs. You know, I feel like I've got an apology to make. <laughs> Good. It was. I think it's a great show. I, I yeah, just absolutely sucked in by it. I mean, I, I think I kind of, I, I think I had it as you for a while. A but few you were the, people. You were said, clever yeah. of, of you on the few people who. When you were interviewed, you'd actually put on a voice as well. You were trying. Yes, to I did like a posh voice to sort of. I was trying to be the character of this steampunk hedgehog, and uh, and I was trying to. Yeah, I was trying to throw them a little bit with doing a posh voice. But you just can't help it. Your mannerisms and your the little affectations in your voice sometimes. And I was on the BBC at the same time. I had my own show, first and last uh, game show on the BBC, and I thought, oh, that'll throw everybody because people won't think you're allowed to be on the same time. But you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I was going to say we're, we're <laughs> What's up? I was going to say we should probably start playing the game soon. We've got a few minutes. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, okay. Have you got anything that you want to plug? Just one more time, Jason. Uh, the weekly, um, the weekly stand-up. That's the big one that I want you to uh, get involved in. So that's every Thursday night live comedy. Uh, all the acts get uh, paid, which is great. Uh, a lot of the big acts. Uh, Rob Brydon, we've had um, Harry Hill. We've got Sarah Pascoe this week. We've got John Bishop booked in. Uh, Russell Howard. Reese Darby is going to do one. Uh, Chris Ramsey and Rosie Ramsey. So loads of big acts, but loads of comics you've not heard of as well. That's sort of what it's for. So some brilliant comics that you've not heard of. And uh, everybody gets paid, so trying to support the in industry. And also, which is fabulous, um, we uh, hopefully 
fingers crossed, uh, be able to make a decent donation to the Theatre Artists Fund at the end of it all as well. That's amazing. Not Thank bad for a fiver. Um, that, okay. Well, then, right. now I am going to pass you over to Nathaniel, who is going to play a game with you. Can't wait. Okay, this is the game, Jason. It's called Better or Worse. All we right. have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. Okay. All right, so beginning with Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. Is Goldie Horn better or worse than Cuba Gooding Jr.? Uh, ooh, so you're looking at uh, Show Me the Money versus Private Benjamin. I'm going to go um, Goldie Horn's better. Yes, Goldie Horn is better. Yeah, Macaulay yeah. Culkin, better or worse than Goldie Horn? Worse. Worse, worse yeah. Of course. Jeff Brosnan, better or worse than Macaulay Culkin? Better. 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 Yeah. Kurt Russell, better or worse than Pierce Brosnan? Ooh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go better. Married yeah, to better. Horn as well. Yeah. Russell Crowe, better or worse than Kurt Russell? Worse. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Daniel Craig, better or worse than Russell Crowe? Better. Better. Yeah. Oh, I'm on Daniel fire. Daniel Radcliffe, better or worse than Daniel Craig? Worse. Better. Worse. <gasps> Danny DeVito, better or worse than Daniel Radcliffe? Better. Better, better. more. <laughs> Danny Minogue, better or worse than Danny DeVito? Worse. 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 Kylie Minogue, better or worse than Danny Minogue? I mean, even Danny Minogue would say better. <laughs> better. Yeah. It's a 10! Oh my god! It's got a <laughs> Oh my god! You're the first! Is it, did we even, oh. Have we ever had a 10? Have we ever had a ten? I don't know that we have. I think it's maybe, maybe we've had, maybe what I've definitely got ten before. Wow! An actual guest, come on and get ten. Oh my god! Jason, nowhere. That's no incredible achievement. Thank you so you much. have beaten this season Harry Hill and Luke Morley with nine, Susie Dent with eight, Henry Norman and Johnny Vegas with seven. You got uh, you got a ten. Oh my goodness! I'm, I'm so honoured. achievement. I mean, that I am. I I can't believe I got a nine, but I would say <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed. I am annoyed about that. I am annoyed about that. But I'm uh, yeah. Well, of all we must have just been in tune there. Down, of all the things you've achieved in lockdown... I feel like I've finally achieved something in this lockdown. This is the absolute best. This is going straight on your Wikipedia entry. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is incredible. Um, thank you so much for talking to us oh, today. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having us. Um, well done with everything that you're doing. I think it's really important that you're uh, doing your bit to keep uh, the comedy industry going. And, yeah, thanks, um, man. Uh, yeah, just uh, take care of yourself. Uh, nice one. Yeah, you too. Go. We need to talk to you for two seconds after we finish recording. All right. But thank you for no worries. Thanks. I've been Nick Helm. This has been Nathaniel Metcalf. We've been talking to Jason Mumford. Welcome to the clubhouse, Jason. Uh, I'm just testing out new ways of wrapping up the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been three years. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, keep sending in your fan mail and uh, look after each other. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold. They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold.